seated. Worthy is Christ, the Lamb who was slain for our sins. Well, we're going to come to uh, God's Word this morning. And uh, I've been preaching through the book of Ecclesiastes, so that's where we're going. Chapter 4 of Ecclesiastes. And we're going to look at what uh, the Lord has to say to us this morning through the pen of Solomon in Ecclesiastes 4. That's page 658 in your church Bible. Um, if you don't have a Bible with you, you can find one under your seat. And I'll read uh, verses 1 to 12. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been born and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and striving after the wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one because they have good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. This is God's word. Why don't we ask uh, God's help in understanding it? Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father in heaven, Lord, sometimes we come to your Bible and, uh, and there are um, chapters that are very clear to us, and sometimes we come to Proverbs that are difficult to understand. Lord, would you give us clarity Help us to understand what your word says. And Lord, we pray that your spirit would help us to apply your word as it is revealed to us. Thank you for every uh, precious person who is here today. And we pray that you would do your work in each and every one of us as we come to you and look to you for help. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't have to tell you that we live in a very sinful world, a world filled with tragedy and trauma. And I was recently uh, struck by uh, a news report taken from October of 1990. It came out of Romania. You, you might remember it. Uh, the American Broadcasting Corporation went into uh, Romanian orphanages and, um, and examined what was happening uh, in these orphanages. And they found uh, children neglected, 
that their growth was stunted, their mental, uh, intellectual capacity was stunted. Uh, they were given the bare necessities of life, food, water, and shelter. But what was most tragic about these little children was that they were utterly alone. In this overcrowded orphanage, they didn't have anyone to tuck them in at night. They had no one to kiss them uh, before bed. They had no one to pray with them, no one to read them bedtime stories. We see the devastating effects of sin in this world as we look at uh, very real circumstances that we hear about in the news and uh, on social media. And the world that we live in is not much different than the world that Solomon lived in. We see that here in this chapter. Solomon observes this world and he sees tragedy. He sees oppressors and the oppressed. He sees uh, the rich uh, subjecting the poor. He sees slaveholders and, and people that are being abused. And he talks about that here in this chapter. He uh, specifically talks about two men. He talks about one man uh, who is utterly alone. Let's call him the sufferer. And he, we read in verse 1, you can look at it with me. This man has no comforter. And then he points us to a second man. And this man is also utterly alone. Let's call him the sinner. But he's utterly alone for different reasons. He's alone because he's led this, this life and this path of sin and it has utterly destroyed every relationship that he has ever had. And so he talks about these two men. He talks about the sufferer in verses 1 to 3. He talks about the sinner in verses 4 to 6. And then in verses uh, 5 or 6 to 12, he talks about the secluded. He talks about the loneliness that he sees in the world around him. And so we'll look at those today, the sufferer, the sinner, and the secluded. Let's look first at the sufferer. You'll see him in verses 1 to 3. What strikes me about him is that he is in pain. He has um, been harmed by another person. And Solomon says there's no one there to comfort him. He's utterly alone in his pain. And there, we, there is a kind of pain in this world, be it physical pain or emotional pain or it could be the pain of losing someone, or it could be the pain of trauma. It's this kind of pain, we read about it in the book of Job. You remember Job. He lost his wife, his kids, his property, his health all in the same day. That kind of pain. It's a pain that some of us may never experience, though we all experience pain in life. And it's a pain that some people know very, very well. And so Solomon uh, speaks of this pain. It's the, the kind of pain that victims of human trafficking experienced as they're auctioned and sold and treated nothing more than, than property. It's the kind of pain that the prophet Jeremiah experienced when he cried out, Cursed is the day that I was born. Why did I ever come out of the womb to see trouble and sorrow and shame? It's... It, it's a pain that comes in various forms. It could be the pain of a wife who's lost a murdered husband. It could be the kind of pain that a bullied child experiences. It's, it could be the kind of pain that a battered woman experiences or the victim of assault or abuse experiences. And so he speaks of this pain, this kind of pain that longs for escape. 
It's the kind of pain that actually says, maybe life isn't worth living. It's the kind of pain that says, I wish I had never been born at all. And we see him saying that, don't we? Look at verses 2 and 3. What does he say in verses 2 and 3? He makes this declaration. He declares that the dead who are already dead are happier than the living. But better than both, he says, is the one who has never been born at all. He's expressing this common human response that so many people uh, feel. That there's so much pain and suffering in this world that it's, it's overwhelming. We see that this is a particular kind of pain. This is the pain of one person harming another person. The thesaurus lists these words next to the word oppression. In verse 1, we, Solomon says, I saw oppression in this world. In other words, he saw abuse in this world. He saw brutality in this world. He saw coercion in this world. He saw domination in this world. He saw injustice in this world and maltreatment and subjection. He saw oppression. He saw slaves being whipped by their masters. He saw children being neglected by their parents and wives being uh, battered by their husbands. He saw controlling, abusive relationships in this world. He saw sin and the breakdown of, of society because of sin. Look at verse 2. In addition to that all, what does he see? He sees tears. Now we know that Sometimes pain causes tears, but it doesn't always cause tears. Sometimes it causes numbness. Sometimes it causes emotional deadness. Sometimes pain withdraws from people and isolates itself. Sometimes pain masks itself with a smile. Sometimes pain engages in reckless behavior. And so he sees people that are in pain, who are responding to pain, their tears. And the worst part of it all is that they are utterly alone. Look at verse 1. They have no comforter. And perhaps they are searching for comfort. People search for comfort all the time. Sometimes they, they try and find comfort in their work. They dig their heels into their work. They work harder. They, don't, they go to work early and they leave late. Other people uh, make themselves very busy. Others act recklessly. They go from one party to another to another, from what, one nightclub to the next. Other people uh, go from relationship to relationship trying to find comfort in a, a person. Other people uh, spiral into a world of addiction. Some people find themselves all alone in bed because their bed is the safest place. It's the place of comfort and safety. And so we see this, this person, he's been harmed by another person, verse 1. He, he, has his, he is responding through, through tears. It could be tears or he's responding to this pain. And he has no comforter, we are told. And not only that, but it seems, Solomon says, that this person has won. Not this person, but the, the person who has harmed them has won. Whoever that person is, their oppressor has won. Look at verse 1 again. Power was on the side of their oppressor. So whether that oppressor was a bully or an employer or an abuser, 
whoever it was, whatever it was that hurt them, it seems like that person has won. It reminds me of the story of Naboth. Uh, you, you know the story of Naboth. It's not in your children's Bible, but it's in the Bible Bible. And uh, the story of Naboth is found in 1 Kings 21, and we read about this hardworking man, an industrious man. He's inherited his parents' vineyard. And King Ahab, whose palace is next to that vineyard, looks at this vineyard and says, I want it. And so he goes to Naboth and he says, how much do you want for your vineyard? And Naboth says, no, this vineyard was given to me by my parents and it belonged to their parents and their parents. I'm not giving it to you. Well, Ahab goes home and he sulks. And his wife Jezebel comes to comfort him and says, aren't you the king? You can have anything that you want. Why don't you just go and take that vineyard? And so she devises a plan to take the vineyard. And she falsely accuses Naboth and then has him murdered. And it would seem like King Ahab had won. And the scriptures are filled with stories like this, true stories of injustice. Cain spilling the blood of his brother Abel. Joseph being sold into slavery, being falsely accused and imprisoned. Stephen the martyr being stoned to death. It's the kind of injustice that, that made David, King David, cry out, how long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? Will you hide your face from me? And, and we see all this injustice in the world around us. And sometimes we wonder, how long, O oh Lord, is this going to last? How long does that person have to put up with this thing? There's comfort in knowing that our God, one of his attributes is justice. And we wait patiently as Christians for his justice sometimes. And sometimes we see that there's justice in this world. When people's, uh, people's crimes are actually punished by the state. But we also know that God is not going to leave uh, any crime unpunished for the unrepentant. And that all people, apart from Christ, apart from His grace, will one day have to own up to their crimes and face up to what they've done. And so there's there's a comfort in knowing that God is a God of justice. Now, what about suffering? When our friends and family suffer, suffer, how do we typically respond? I think often our impulse is to try and fix it. Now, I think of, this, this is the last illustration, Janelle. I think of my wife <laughs> who suffers migraines. And every time she feels a migraine coming, uh, lots of the time I'll just go into action mode and I'll ask her all these questions. What do you need? Uh, can I look after the kids? Can I get you a Tylenol? Or can I get you an Advil? Can I get you paracetamol? Can I, can I turn the light off? What can I do to help you? What can I do to fix whatever you are experiencing? And she never says anything. She never says this, but I know she's thinking it. And she's probably thinking, what I need now from you is 10 minutes of quiet. And, and so we have this impulse, don't we, that we want to fix people's problems. But sometimes by trying so hard to fix people's problems, we end up hurting more than we do helping. And, and sometimes we face in the church, we face these problems that people have, the suffering, the real suffering that people experience. We try to help, and it, it actually does more hurt 
then it does help. What can we do as Christians? How can we respond to these people who are actually really suffering in in great ways? Well, I think the best thing to do is not to try and fix their suffering, but just to sit with them and to pray for them and to be with them and to comfort them in their suffering. Solomon said one of the problems he observed in this world was that people don't have comforters. And Christians are called to, to comfort those who are broken and, and hurt and afflicted. And so there's a very practical thing that we as Christians can do. Don't draw away from people who are suffering, but listen to them and pray with them and comfort them in their suffering. And then a second thing, remind them. Remind them that even if no one understands what they're going through, even if you don't understand what, what they're going through, even if they don't understand what they're going through, there is one who does understand, Jesus Christ. Not only does Jesus see the tears of those who have shed those tears behind closed doors, but he shed those tears himself, and his tears were mingled with blood, and he suffered in a way that no one could ever fathom. He does understand, and he cares. You know, your parents might not fully understand it. Your wife or your husband or your kids or your friends or your employer might not understand what exactly you are going through. And you might even be filled with frustration, angry that people just don't get it. But take your pains and your sufferings to the Lord, to the one who does understand. And in his timing, he'll bring healing, if not in this life, then in the next Now look, there's another person we see here, a second person, and that's in verses 4 to 6. What do we call him? We call him the sinner. He's the oppressor. Verse 1 says that power is on his side. He could be the man with a million faces. He could be the abuser. He could be the bully. He could be the brawler. And verse 4 tells us, look at verse 4, that something fuels his sin. Envy. Envy fuels his behavior. Now, what is envy? Well, envy is desiring something that someone else has. And envy belongs to a family. Envy's a father's name is idolatry, desiring something more than God. Envy's mother's name is greed, an unquenchable desire for something that you don't have. His sister's name is lust. She's the spitting image of her mother greed. And his nephew is adultery and his niece is theft. And what I'm getting at here is that all these sins bear something in common. Their surname is desire. The sinner is motivated by the desires of his heart, the sinful desires of his heart. He wants something, he wants it really badly, and he's going to do whatever it takes to get what he wants. It could be a desire to have more money, it could be a desire for revenge, it could be a desire for power, it could be a desire for sex, it could be a desire to be liked or respected. His desire, our desires, motivate our behavior. Desire motivates people to do all kinds of things. Think about it. What, what, does, what motivates an 
and let's use the bank robber. What motivates him to rob a bank? He doesn't just wake up in the morning and think, oh, it'd be a good day to rob a bank. No. There's been this long path that, that, has, that he's been on. A love for money led to a lust for money, which eventually and slowly in time led him to rob this bank. But it was all driven by, by his heart's desire. And the same is true of every other sin. Why does an employee underpay? Why does an employer underpay his employee? Because he has the exact same desire that the bank robber has, a desire for money. And though that behavior might not manifest itself in the same way, the, the, the root, the sin in his heart is the same. It's greed. So desire motivates people. And that's the point that Solomon makes in verse 4. These desires motivate our behavior. Envy motivates people to go to work. It motivates people to fight with each other. It motivates people to compete. I think that's why capitalism works so well, because you have these rival corporations that envy each other, and they're driven to fight for people's money. And likewise, envy also motivates us to sin. It motivates people to steal. Isn't that what communism is? The problem with sinful desires is that they only work for so long. You might get what you want for a moment, but in the meantime, a world of hurt and pain has been caused by the people you love. Your sinful desires always cause suffering in the long run, and they never satisfy. Pornography never satisfies. It always wants more, and it never stops Addictive substances, they give you a momentary thrill, but they always demand more. The same is true of deception. How many of you have, don't put your hand up please, how many of you have told a white lie, but then you have to tell another lie to cover the white lie, and another lie, and another lie, and another lie, until you're either caught in a web, web of lies or the truth has found you out. And so it, it, it never satisfies, and it always demands now let's look at verse 5 here. And in verse 5, there's this proverb, and it's a little bit confusing. Um, it says that the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is one handful of quietness than two handfuls full of toil and striving after wind. That confuses me, and if it confuses me, I'm sure it confuses you too. It's, it's a proverb. It's a riddle. The, the reader, the original reader in, in Solomon's, they probably would have understood this. We have a harder time understanding some of these proverbs and riddles, but let me try and explain it the best I can. Imagine I'm out for dinner with Gerald, and we're having donuts for dinner. And um, they're Nutella donuts, because those are my favorites, so just take note of that. And uh, one is for me, and the other is for Gerald. Filled with greed, I take this hand, I grab my donut, I take that hand, I grab his donut, and I consume them both in, in a single minute. And then, because I'm so ravenous for these, these Nutella donuts, I'm looking around for more, and I can't find them, and so I start gnawing on my hands. That's the disgusting illustration that Solomon is using here. He's saying, he's talking about a person who's so greedy, he can't get what he wants. He's, he has this unquenchable desire for more, and he starts gnawing on his hands to satisfy his greed. And so he says in the next little bit here, that's actually better just to have your own share, one hand, and have quietness or nothing. 
in the other hand. So, and the point, again, that he's making is that sin, that this, this desire for more, it can consume us, and it can drive our behavior. Now, there's an example of this, I think, in, in John 12 and 13. And we see this example exemplified in the person of Judas Iscariot. We all know who Judas is. Judas was the treasurer. That's no offense against our treasurer. But he kept the money pouch close to his side. And he, he and I'm going to speculate for a minute here with, with you. Imagine him getting the, the money pouch the first day. Perhaps he didn't steal from it on the first day, but he began to count the money. He began to look at the money, and then he began to fantasize about the money, and then he began to dream about the money. And then he began to justify his theft. He said to himself, well, I'll take a dollar, but I'll put it back later. And eventually, this desire for money gave birth to sin. And his sin gave birth to betrayal, and his betrayal, well, he betrayed our Savior. And it ruined his life. And in, and in this way, we can see how sin leads us down this dangerous, dangerous path. And our sin might not be money, but it might be women. It might start on a beach and end in a brothel. Or it might be deception. It might be a white lie that ends in perjury. It might be a substance, a pill once a week that ends in addiction. And what we need to remember is that in this way, we are all the same. Because we all struggle with these same sinful desires. They might not manifest themselves in the same way. But we all struggle with the same things. You might not be a murderer, but the murderer was once like you. You might not be an adulterer, but the adulterer was once like you, unhappy. You might not be a thief, but the thief was once like you. You might be a liar, and, and you might be a perjurer, and he was once like you, a liar. And it all begins with these disordered desires, these desires that begin to slowly consume us and control us. And like chains, they grab our ankles and our wrists, and slowly we become more and more bound to those desires until the gospel grabs hold of your life, until the word of God breaks the chains of sin and sets you free from those things that were so enslaving and captivating to you. I love that, that Wesley hymn that we sing. Um, and it's the fourth verse of that hymn that I love the most. It says, Long mine imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. I've been set free. I rose, went forth. And followed thee. And so when Christ came to this earth, he not only promised to forgive us, yes, he, he did promise to forgive us, and we are forgiven, but he also came to break those chains, to free us from the domineering, controlling, addicting power of sin. Sin is the real oppressor here in Ecclesiastes 4. And that's what God's grace does. God fights those desires in us one at a time sometimes two at a time, or three at a time, or four at a time. He crucifies lust in your heart. He drives the nail through bitterness. He destroys and mortifies envy and greed. But he doesn't leave us to fight that alone. He's given us the church, hasn't he? We're not, we're not supposed to sit here and let people just live their best life now. 
Our calling as Christians is to engage with people, to challenge people, to confront their sin, but also to, to offer them and extend them grace and mercy and forgiveness. And oftentimes we do one or the other. Either we come down really heavy-handed on their sin, and then we just say, well, I'm done with you. Or we're, we're very gracious, but we don't confront the sin. As Christians, we need to do both. So we've looked at the sufferer, we've looked at the sinner. Let's look at the secluded person, that's verses 7 to 12, the person who's isolated. And there's something else that Solomon saw in this world. He saw that the world was a very lonely place. He, in verse 1, he observes, like I said, the sufferer is all alone. No one's there to wipe his tears. No one's there to comfort him. And then, in verse 8, Solomon observes that the world is also a lonely place for the sinner, right? Just like the sufferer, the sinner is all alone. His, foolish, his foolishness, the terrible things he has done, have just completely destroyed all of his earthly relationships so that Solomon says even his brother and his son, they've abandoned him. He's all alone. Uh, verse 8 says there's no end to his toil. His eyes not content with his wealth. For who am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? Now what Solomon wants us to see in this passage is that loneliness affects all people. It affects uh, the rich and the poor. It affects the righteous and the unrighteous. The wicked, the proud, the humble, those who are gentle. It affects all people. Before he died, Elvis Presley, you all know. Elvis, he's the king of rock. He's this legendary man. He's kind of this, this icon, music icon. From a worldly standpoint, he's, he has everything that you could ever want or imagine. Before he died, he asked, an, a reporter asked him this question. Elvis, when you first started playing music, you said you wanted to be rich, famous, and happy. Are you happy? And his response was, no. I'm lonely. Elvis was not alone in his loneliness. Loneliness is this, this pandemic that affects the world, it affects even the church. You might be married with children, you might have a million friends, you might have 30 co-workers that you chat with every day, and for whatever reason, even though you're surrounded by all these people, you, you feel lonely. Why is it that you can go to a party and feel just as empty after the party as you did before the party? You come to church, you smile, you chat, you talk about the football, you talk about the weather. You go out for a coffee with your friends, they don't challenge you. No one challenges your sin. You go home, dinner is filled with, with small talk, and no one actually meaningfully engages with you or the real burdens you're experiencing. You have this uh, kind of stoicism. Why are we so lonely? Maybe we struggle to challenge sin. Maybe we struggle to forgive. Maybe we struggle to extend grace to the sinner and struggle to empathize with the sufferer. Maybe the, the issue is that we struggle as Christians to engage with each other on a meaningful level. 
We have conversations, but we don't have conversations that matter. Our conversations should have eternal value. We should encourage one another in the things of Christ and in our Christian faith. I think this is where verses 9 to 12 challenge us as a church. Look at verses 9 to 12. Solomon says, two are better than one. Why? Well, they're better, better value for their labor. But also, verse 10 says, if they, one falls down, the other can pick the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. In Genesis chapter 2, we learn that God's design and blueprint for his world was that man should not be alone. That's why he created Eve to be with Adam and he, he created the institution of the family. It is not good for man to be alone. We were not designed to be alone. We were not designed, though you can argue that it was necessary for a time, social distancing and isolation and lockdowns are not a good thing. Maybe they were necessary, but it is not in God's plan for human relationships. We are given this picture here of man in relationship with other men and women, meaningful relationships. And he, he gives us this picture of a, a, a rope, and he says that human relationships are like a three-corded rope. Two of the cords are human relationships, a man and his wife, a brother and a sister, a child and her parent. And let's just say that the third strand is Christ. So that every relationship that we engage in is a relationship of three. You, the other person, and Christ. It's, that's not just for marriages. That's for every human relationship with other Christians. That we are glued together, united by Christ Jesus. Christ himself came down from heaven to this earth to establish and reconcile a relationship between us and God. That's why he was called Emmanuel. So in our loneliness, it's comforting to know that we have a Savior that will never leave us or forsake us. But, listen to this. Our faith is not just a me and Jesus faith. It's Christ and the church. It's Christ and a body of believers who are all engaged in these meaningful relationships. And the way that we show our Christ-likeness, the way that we live our Christian faith, is by being the hands and feet of Jesus. You know, church is not just a podcast we listen to each week. The church is a real community of believers that care and correct and comfort one another. And we can't lose sight of that. It's not a building. It's not event, an event. It's a place for us to engage in these relationships. I find Ed Welch's words helpful. He says this. I'll read it to you. In our battle with sin, we need a team of people. We need teachers to teach, to help us understand the scriptures. We need people to pray, to intercede for us. We need preachers to focus our eyes on Christ. 
We need encouragers to remind us that, of God's grace when we feel like failures. Wise men and women to discern when you are making foolish decisions. We need Christians to tell us that everything that God has said is true in Christ. In other words, God's gifts to us as people, not just one person, but the church. This is how Christ meets us. Sure, you will learn something of spiritual value through a podcast, but does Christ meet you in a podcast in the way that he does in a church? No. Because in the church, we have these relationships, these Christian relationships that matter. Now, I want to close with an observation. I find that there's two reasons people disengage with church. The first reason is that their sin is too great. They are so ashamed of what they've done that they feel that they can't face the people that have been hurt. Or perhaps they've misunderstood the gospel. They think, oh, I need to have this level of holiness before I go back to church. But the church is the very place that the sinner needs to be, the worst sinner. The church is the place where the sinner will find grace and forgiveness, where he will be held accountable, where he will be challenged, and where he will grow. And there's a second reason that people often disengage with church. They've been hurt. They've been hurt by people in the church. They've been hurt by the church. Uh, their suffering has rocked their faith. And I don't want to, I, I want to be very sensitive here because that, that, for some people, is very painful. But again, the church is exactly where you need to be. It's the place where people will listen to you and pray with you and be the hands and feet of Jesus with you and walk alongside you and, and offer these tangible expressions of love. You can't go through your suffering alone. Solomon says it's, it's actually futile to go through suffering alone. And so as a church, what do we do? We welcome sinners and sufferers into our midst. And for those who, who can and will, our task is to make it known to those people that this is a place where sinners can find grace and where those sufferers can find hope. And that's what the Word of God has for you today. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we, uh, we come to you this Sunday morning uh, after a full week of various events and things that have happened. Some of those things have been really difficult for some of us. Some of those things have, have been wonderful and encouraging. But Lord, we come to you this morning in need of your, your grace. Lord, take this, this word and use it to comfort those who suffer and to challenge those who sin. And Lord, all of us need to be both comforted and challenged because all of us are sinners and sufferers at the same time. And so, Lord, would you empower us to do what we could not do in our own strength, to be the hands and feet of Jesus. We pray this all in his name. Amen.